And you mentioned Feldenkrais, and I think Moshe Feldenkrais was probably, in my opinion, as far as like somatic methods, the most far ahead of his time and still relevant to today because he never told you, it wasn't like this westernized militant, like I tell you what to do, this is the way, you know, even with Egoscue, it's like 90 degree angles, like this is the standard we hold the body to, it must be in this. Moshe Feldenkrais never told you to be any way. It was more of a learning experience and you learned to write your own owner's manual. You learned and listened and he never told you what to do is all, is all experiential. And then you get to come up with your own solutions. And to me, that's the highest level of, I think of any, of any method or system, if you want to call it that. That was Charlie Reed. And you're listening to the just fly performance podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, simplyfaster.com in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from uh, back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel uh, form and technique change. It, it's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power. And it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10 meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body and ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it. And that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to another episode. It's great to have you guys here. So Charlie Reed is a man I met at Pat Davidson's Rethinking the Big Pattern Seminar. I lived in San Francisco for eight years. I met a lot of really awesome coaches, trainers, and individuals there that really helped further my own growth as a coach and athlete and as a person. And Charlie was one of those individuals who you meet and you just realize that his knowledge and, and wisdom in so many schools of thought just goes so far. And I, right from, from the first time I met him, I was, it's, it's one of those things where not only does he know a lot, but he also just, he's, he's continually getting to the core of things, not just going and doing every seminar and, and workshop, but trying to find and formulate all those common bonds that are the principles, the underlying principles by which we actually do adapt to these, these means and methods. And there's a million of them out there. So Charlie himself is a, a movement educator, a coach, a massage therapist, even has experience as a professional musician. 
he is passionate about helping others reach their physical potential through smarter training, learning, and moving their bodies in the most efficient way possible. Charlie, as I said, has done an immense amount of uh, continuing education and learning. And if you want to talk about any sort of system that's out there in the human movement and fitness field, Charlie is going to be, should be on your short list to talk to. And so I actually had meant to do an in-person sit-down podcast with Charlie before I left San Francisco and moved to Ohio. That never happened. So I had to sadly settle for catching him online, but I'm really glad we were able to get together and have this chat. One of the things that Charlie and I felt would be a good conversation was, uh, given, given his experience, was just getting to the core of, of these big systems in physical performance, rehab, conditioning, and kind of dissecting how it is that we actually do adapt to, to rehab means, to training means, to, or from anywhere from that rehab to high performance spectrum. What's the core of how we as humans adapt to that? Just kind of even cutting beyond the specific methods that are actually used. So within this too, it, it gives a unique perspective on what actually is corrective exercise. And we also start with some cool anecdotes on the show of just Charlie's experience with things like long duration meditation and the Agassi method, which actually kind of have a little bit in common in some ways. So uh, it's this was a really fun show with a really truly wise coach and someone I really enjoy talking to with Charlie Reed. Let's get on to it, episode 223. So you were just telling me about a silent meditation retreat. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, what did you learn on that? And in the sense that you could relate it to just things that perhaps we do in in the gym or in rehab or quote unquote corrective type work. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of backstory. I, I had taken I toyed around with some meditation things and I had done this thing called MBSR, which is um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And uh, it culminated in a one-day meditation retreat. And it was kind of like a a collection of different mindfulness techniques. So you got a little bit of exposure to different things, whether that's yoga, walking meditation, sitting meditation, body scan meditation. But really the one-day retreat, which was six hours long, was like the most powerful thing for me. So you know, my brain was like, uh, I want to do what's like the Navy SEALs boot camp of meditation retreats and talking with some friends and colleagues and whatnot. They said, oh, the 10 day Vipassana is the, you got to do that. And so, um, my stepfather sadly had passed away in 2018 and I was like kind of in this existential crisis. And I decided that, you know, this was the year that I was going to do this. So that's how, that's how I arrived. That's a little bit of the backstory there. But what's interesting, and I think for for movement professionals, coaches, fitness professionals, we're such movement oriented people. So I'd say, as it relates to to movement and fitness, that we're taking us taking some time to not move and just to sit is probably very very challenging. At least it certainly was for me to be at this meditation retreat, having to, you know, you're meditating for 12, 14 hours a day, and there's no talking. Your exercise is basically walking in between you know, hour long or two hour long sits. So that, that was probably the most fascinating thing to me was kind of getting away from this idea of moving and starting to just sit with yourself. And also, as we were discussing uh, just a moment ago, that, you know, sensations in your body, physical sensations are, are transient. A lot of times they're not, they come and go, so they come and go in your awareness and they're not always permanent. So maybe as it relates to something like pain, oftentimes sensations of pain that you would feel in your body, or if you define it as pain, are just a sensation like any other. And so you'll, for example, be sitting and I would experience like incredible back pain 
But if I would just sit there for long enough, oftentimes it would go away. And what actually made the pain worse was like trying to want to be somewhere else other than with the pain, which could be, you know, a valuable lesson for, for people because we just, as soon as we get the little slightest bit of discomfort, we're just like, Ooh, you know, we cringe and tighten up around the pain as opposed to softening around the pain. So those are, you know, those are just some of the many lessons I think that could be gleaned from that, but I'm sure everybody has their own experience and should have their own experience going through something like that. But yeah, it was a very, very cool experience. Yeah. I think in our just general culture, we just don't tend to take much time just period for anything that involves prolonged time periods of sensing and just being forced to sit with ourselves. It definitely takes some intention to do that. Was this before or after me and you were hanging out at Kezar talking about extreme iso lunges? I forget. (laughs) That's a good question. I think it was afterwards or might've been right afterwards. Yeah. I can't remember, but I had been doing, you know, like isometrics that actually be interesting to see like if i did like uh some isometrics beforehand and then did the 10 day sit and just see how the quality of that felt or maybe i could sit with it for longer but yeah i can't recall i think there's a lot of things to be learned out of like just the extreme isometric lunge holding a prolonged you know full stretch lunge position for time and mm-hmm. i think one of the thoughts that has crossed my mind is where is this pain coming from or what is this and actually i should say the most extreme probably maybe even more than extreme iso lunge is just a, just hanging from a bar, just straight up hanging from a bar. Cause mm-hmm. what are those, the, at least the, the hypnosis anecdotes would say this person got hypnotized and they could hold this bridge like indefinitely or whatnot, or the physiology that might say your slow twitch muscles really have a almost indefinite capacity to hang on or whatever. And, and where does mm-hmm. fatigue start with like central governor theory? And it, I noticed this more when I'm having very poor days with hanging from a bar where probably the last year more so, um, I used to, when I was rock climbing, I could easily go like over three minutes. And then the further I got away from that, I could still get over two, but then days I couldn't get over two and I'm just like dying. I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, is it just strength? Like, is it, am I mentally weak? Am I neurally weak? Like what, what is going on here? But I'll say too, like the extreme ISO lunge is a good one where I'm like, what, like, what is this? Like, cause in coaching people on the extreme ISO lunge for long enough, you realize that there's almost in some ways, two kinds of people. It's never just two, but there's the people who just don't even want to go into that stretch range because they know it's going to hurt. And so they just avoid it. And then there's the people who will, or basically you're the person who either goes down into the ISO lunge or you're the person who goes up out of it. <laughs> And I wonder right. if there's something to the person that goes into it and like being willing to sit with that, you know, sinking into that discomfort, if you will. That's interesting. I wonder if you could do like something where you could look at somebody's HRV score, for example, and correlate that with their ability to tolerate like ice, long isometrics. You know what I mean? Like if you're that day, like you were mentioning, you're kind of using this as a lit, using the the bar hang as a litmus test for how like, you know, how well you're doing that day, maybe. If for some people that can, uh, that are maybe a little bit too revved up on the sympathetic side of things, maybe they just can't handle the isometrics that day or even something like, um, breath hold times. Like if you're really, really stressed out, you know, your, your control pause or your breath hold time would be, would be less and that can affect things too. And I think people that are really like super parasympathetic, maybe they can just sit there and handle the burn for longer. I don't know. I haven't done a lot with HRV outside of myself, just a little bit, but I would mm-hmm. bet you that there's a super close correlation between the HRV and the hang time. 
Uh, the podcast yeah. I just did with Leo Ryan, uh, breathing specialist, not too long ago, he was saying that that's what he uses instead of HRV. And I, it makes me think mm-hmm. like every time we're in the gym, like, is there, what are we doing from an art form perspective that says we're skilled practitioners? Like looking at a phone or an mm-hmm. app that says HRV is not, does not take, I mean, you get better at it, but it's like, it's not as skilled as just what, teaching someone to breathe and understanding based off that, but perhaps a rougher form of a pure number would be just, Hey, everyone hang from the bar as long as you can this morning. All right, let's write down your time. And I, I would do that particularly with a water polo team that I trained at UC Berkeley and because the assistant coach loved it too. He just, it was a tough thing to do and he really enjoyed that. And it was an easy mm-hmm. way to get something very hard in and difficult without like destroying people, you know, cause you recover from it pretty quickly. We usually did at the end though. It's kind of hard. I mean, you know, if you think of the workout as a crescendo effect, like to come in and say, all right, like get on the bar, let's see. And you do it every day. I don't, I mean, that takes a little bit of mental energy. I'd be interested though. I'd be, that would be, um, if there's anyone out there looking for like a master's thesis research or something or an idea, I think that'd be kind of cool. So if you end up doing it, let me know. Totally. I think there's a lot, a lot to be learned uh, about ways to ramp the system down. (laughs) And I certainly see that, you know, with meditation practice, I don't necessarily either think that meditation has to have a monopoly on this kind of stuff, but like, there's something to be said for this, like, tabula rasa this cleaning of the slate um and starting from a baseline and maybe even just like cleaning house mentally or psychologically every year to to start to appreciate greater levels of training and maybe it's just not adopted as much again i'm guessing here but maybe it's just not adopted as much just because it's of the time constraints like you know i'm I'm thinking of athletes here like okay everybody we're going to go on a 10-day silent retreat they're like uh we actually got training to do you know (laughs) yeah but uh, it's super fascinating. I would, I would love, I'm curious to see if other coaches have implemented some of that stuff with their athletes at, at some capacity. I know we have apps like Headspace, I think is one of them and people do like 10 minutes a day, but which I'm sure could have some benefit, but the difference between doing 10 minutes, like a 10 day sit is, it can be quite profound. And at least from my personality, I, I feel like I need to be hit over the head with a frying pan to really like feel something <laughs> and maybe some people can appreciate subtlety. I, I never got much out of doing just 10 minutes of a, of an app, but you know, I guess that's why there's something for everybody. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. It makes you think, well, what if you just did, I mean, you could look at uh, doing an extreme isometric hold for that same amount of time. I'm curious what would happen in the brain waves, you know, as actually maybe I'm going to do that. Cause I have um, the muse headband which attracts, um, it's like an EEG or electroencephalogram and tells you where your brain waves are at. And so far I've just used it for, you know, it's kind of a, I guess, meditation tool though. I'm so ADD. I'm part of me is just interested where my brain waves are at. If it's like low and you're getting into alpha, you hear the little birds and stuff like that, but maybe I'll do this. This will have to be a YouTube video or something is just to see what happens the further. I feel like I might go the opposite way, like, you know, way into beta or high beta and just like up, up cycle, like freaking out. Um, <laughs> uh, active, active meditation. We'll have to see what becomes yeah. of that. <laughs> Keep me posted. That sounds fun. So with the sustained work though, so like akin to maybe the meditation, I, I know you've been, and one thing we're going to talk about is just like, maybe we could just call them strong schools of thought in the fitness and performance industry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> extreme, very strong schools of thought, but you were in the Igascu for a while, which I think it involves like long stretching periods of time. Could you explain a little bit about just, I mean, honestly, I don't even know that much about it. I have a, one client who uses, who uses it and seems to enjoy it, but 
I've always just kind of wondered like what good becomes of holding this long passive stretch for such a long period of time. And what's your take on that whole system? Yeah, I, um, Petey Gotsky was a Vietnam war vet who had a tragic injury and I think he shot his hamstring and he came out of it in a lot of pain and he was terribly crooked. And he just looked in the mirror one day and I, this is, again, this is folklore. So I'm getting the story kind of secondhand from one of his employees who I worked under, but he looked in the mirror one day and he's like, I'm crooked. And he tried to straighten his body up in a way that was anatomically correct. I'll put that in air quotes. And um, he tried to hold it and it was very exhausting and he fell out of it, but he noticed that he felt better. So we can call that an isometric, right? You're holding an isometric position. And so he went to the doctor and said, Hey doctor, I'm in a lot of pain. The doctor said, you know, just take these drugs, whatever. I think this is in the seventies. And, uh, so he just grabbed the anatomy book out of the doctor's office and says, "Never mind, I'm going to figure this out on my own. So he kind of went on this journey to healing. And so he kind of got a hold of a lot of books and started doing his own research and experimenting and came up with this method. The method is centered around kind of what I would call very old school Florence Kendall era posture, 90 degree angles, straight lines kind of thing. And, um, it, Obviously, doesn't jive with my philosophy anymore of how the body functions, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it doesn't have some utility and doesn't help people. But there certainly are some features within the Agassiz system that I think are probably helpful for people, especially that are in pain. And we can talk about those things, but there's a lot of passive positioning and passive holds. So, you, for example, they have an exercise called static back where you're laying on your back and your legs are up and over a chair at 90 degrees at the hips and knees. And you just lie there and, and wait till your body just kind of settles into the floor. And if you stay there long enough, you can actually feel your lumbar spine kind of melting and flattening into the floor. So for those that have like, you know, hypertonicity or those that are in pain that have a lot of tension in their body, just sitting quietly and breathing, no matter what position you're in, could have some beneficial effects. He also has a lot of these long isometric holds, as you mentioned. And what we know from our understanding now from from the literature and as well as anecdotal experiences that isometrics tend to have an analgesic or a pain relieving effect on the body, at least for some people. And that could be modulated biochemically from when you occlude a muscle as you're holding the contraction and you release that, you're kind of creating this hydrostatic pumping effect of new fluids. Um, there's a, a change in the, maybe some a sensory change within the cortex. So we know that from the tendinopathy literature that isometrics can have an effect on the, the feedback loops in the body and helping to, to decrease sensitivity. I know from Ebony Rio and colleagues in, in Australia, they talk a lot about tendinopathy and how there's a, it's almost like you have um, a foot on the brake and the gas at the same time. And so maybe it can kind of reset that system a little bit. And again, that's probably a crude definition. It's neurophysiology is probably much more complex than that, but I'm going to, I'm going to work with that for now. And also, you know, there's a powerful relationship between the practitioner and the client. So Egoski was very unique in the, in the way that they talked to clients and the way that they communicated with them. And I don't think that gets enough credit either. So there's many different factors that inform the therapeutic process that I think were valuable. And so that's why I think people probably do well. But I don't necessarily think it's because we got people to be more aligned posturally. You know what I mean? Posture is such a transient thing. It changes minute to minute, hour to hour. You know what I mean? So yeah, those are, those are my initial thoughts anyway. Yeah, no, there's a lot to unpack. It, ma it makes me think about the origins of that make me think of Moshe Feldenkrais and how he figured his stuff out a lot by just, I think he tore his ACL and was trying to like walk it, not walk it off, but trying to figure out how to function on it and try to 
just try to make a way around it. But I like what you say, because I've been to enough different systems where there's always, not always, but like a lot of times it's, hey, here's this person who has a problem. Okay, come up here and let's, you know, do a few things, whatever it is, you know, press here, you know, massage here, work here, breathe this way. And then we test again and now you're, you know, better or whatever. And I guess to me, that's, Agascu actually is probably the, maybe the opposite of that in a a sense, because you're just sitting there a long time. But like you said, there's other, there's other things happening. And that's like, that's really what I want to get into is what are like these global, these global ideas that are, that can really almost be expressed in all these different methods, so to speak. And so the first you said, just being more parasympathetic, I believe was one of the things that you were talking about, or just like breathe, like just breathing there. Like if you were just to to sit and breathe and just be mindful, um, or in, in, you know, instead of necessarily being in a stretched position, or I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've heard the same argument made for acupuncture, you know, when we do studies on things like this, do you have a good control group? Like, how do you know it's the needles or how do you know it's not that somebody just gets to be with their thoughts for an hour you know, or is, or is not doing something that could potentially harm them. So in the case of Egoscue, if you're spending an hour a day doing something that's passive and relaxing and not doing something maybe that's insidious to your body that's causing more provocation of symptoms than you know what I mean so maybe it's just avoiding the bad thing <laughs> that's making things better right and also we know that it could just be the passage of time that makes you feel better like the body has a, is a self-healing organism and so maybe just the passage of time helps that too now I will say that I think there's probably two two of the most common reasons why bodies probably get better. And I guess you can, you know, extrapolate this into both pain and and performance is just novelty and graded exposure. So the body is being exposed to something different and interpreting it in a, either a favorable or non-favorable way. And then graded exposure, of course, is you're just exposing yourself to greater and greater levels of stimulus until the body adapts, hopefully, and you get stronger, if you want to call it that, or more resilient or, or whatever. And I, you mentioned Feldenkrais, and I think Moshe Feldenkrais was probably, in my opinion, as far as like somatic methods, the most far ahead of his time and still relevant to today because he never told you, it wasn't like this westernized militant, like, I tell you what to do. This is the way, you know, even with Egoscue, it's like 90 degree angles. Like this is the standard we hold the body to. It must be in this. Moshe Feldenkrais never told you to be any way. It was more of a learning experience and you learned to write your own owner's manual. You learned and listened and he never told you what to do is all, is all experiential. And then you get to come up with your own solutions. And to me, that's the highest level of, I think of any, of any method or system, if you want to call it that it shouldn't even be a method or a system. It should just be you experiencing the world and writing your own, finding your own path. Yeah. I, I like that. I like, I mean, that's where my coaching has certainly gone. And I think even, just on some level innately that's always been there with me is even I remember when I as a young track coach 20 24 25 26 I realized really quickly that just saying do this with a limb get to this position with a limb never really did anything (laughs) and so it was Mm -hmm. always trying to get an athlete like in javelin instead of saying hold your arm here and go throw it again like that's what which every other coach would usually do that in my conference scenario, at least they would say, oh, you need to do this with your arm, this with your leg, this with your hip. And I would just be like, all right, tell my athlete, hey, um, I want you to do this drill and feel this stretch, you know, about 
five or 10 times and then go through again. You know, that just made sense to me. It just, and honestly, it even I probably was more technical than that. I probably told them some positions in the drill, <laughs> but whereas now I think it would be tried to make it more sensory oriented and, and feel this and, and those types of things. But that's, I don't think it's bad either. I mean, I, I'm not, that's not to say that I don't judge people for being a little bit more constraining about how they teach or being more rigid about some, and you can tell me what you think about this too, but I think it's important to meet people where they're at. And, you know, when you create more constraints for learners, sometimes it's better just to give some structure at first, right? Like you can't go to a five-year-old necessarily, unless they're maybe a savant and you say like, all right, we're going to talk about the javelin. And then you just <laughs> say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to have you experience the javelin. You know what I mean? Like then you end up kid throws a javelin at some other kid or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't teach kids. So it's probably not a fair analogy for me to, to comment on that, but yeah, sometimes we have to have rules, but then over time, hopefully, you know, as, as our understanding grows that we start to release those constraints and break the rules a little bit and, and become a little bit more experiential, but that's also a scary place to be and can be frustrating for some people. And I understand in a commercial model, when you're trying to sell a product, sometimes it's nice to be so certain about things mm -hmm. and create this rigidity because it, it gives people confidence to deal with a problem that's scary. And the reality is that the world is a very vast and uncertain place. And so sometimes providing some peace of mind through uncertainty just helps people to sleep at night. You know, I, <laughs> I you and I know as coaches, it's like none of us know what we're looking at and the body is incredibly complex, but hopefully, you know, I have uh, some ideas that can move us in, in, a, in a direction that's going to be good for you. Yeah. That, I like that. Cause I, I will say, I, I like how you, drew that distinction out and I think of it as yeah the highest order of coaching is really just having you think about like a cheetah she doesn't need anybody to tell it what to do it just does what it is and it's an environment it's perfect it's perfection no one could coach when you see the slow motion of a cheetah or or anything like the bobcat jumping 10 feet and landing on a rock nobody's going to be able to coach that animal to do that thing any better than it's doing it's impossible mm -hmm. it's it, that is perfection and so it's like, well, now where did things go wrong with us? <laughs> do we have a bigger, you know, part of our brain that screws it all up? And, you know, in our development, do we miss steps? Do we miss fundamental skills? Do we not move enough? Do we get hurt? Do we wear bad shoes? Are we too, you know, hard on ourselves from a, you know, a pain and punishment perspective and we use more will than we need to? Like, and I, I, I don't want to go on with that too much, but I've seen it in coaching where a coach may be trying to tell an athlete trying to get an athlete to feel something the way a child might feel. But the athlete just wants, just, just tell me where to put this limb. I need a position to anchor, you know? So I think the ultimate is if we can just explain things without having to say, you know, talk about positions and put this limb here and feel this muscle. But it's almost like you said, like there's like a bridge maybe to get there for a lot of people. And I think that that is important because I think being around track meets enough, I would say for every probably one person that you can see is out there feeling a rhythm, feeling the movement, feeling their, their body. There's probably five or 10 who are just trying to find a position the coach told them to do, you know? And yeah. it's, it, it's like, we, yeah, we want to be like that, more like that person over time. And there is also the idea of the, I think people make the straw man on the, I guess the, the learner centered approach saying, Oh, it's just a free for all. Well, it's a little, I think it's a little bit more, there's more to it than just that. Like, as you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the, the coaches, the best coaches that I've had the privilege of watching, they have groomed their athletes over time to become more autonomous and to seek out the coaches to continue their own development, as, as opposed to the coach just 
being a more autocratic and telling them exactly like a dictator, like you need to do this, 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 this. So I think it probably means at the higher level of, of sport and performance that it, you know, there's more autonomy on the part of the athletes and it's less about kind of telling people what to do. Yeah. At some level, I was talking with a coach about this last year is on some level, I almost wonder if each of us could be a coach in virtually any sport. Like if I could, I mean, I'm not very good at golf, but if I could coach golf and I don't know much about golf either, I mean, a little bit about rotation, but I mean, I'm <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not a genius at it by any means, but I almost wonder, like, could I go be a good coach for a golfer just by sequentially directing their attention, you know, <laughs> just say, Hey, just place your intention on what this joint's doing and, and this is doing and not, you know, and just see what happens. I feel like I end up doing that a lot in the skills that I do know anyways. And so I wonder how far that could take some people, or if you just started there and saw what happened and then you started feeding in, okay, well, here's a image of a similar golfer doing this and did a, you know, whatever. But I kind of wonder how far that could take some people before they'd run into roadblocks. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, also considering the environment too. So let's say you took your approach, Joel's experiential golfing Academy, right? <laughs> and then you got some guy, super biomechanist golfing guy. We'll call him <laughs> yeah, <laughs> super biomechanist golfing guy. Yeah. And he looks super sciencey and he has these rules and right. And so you might be out of business, Joel, because your approach, for example, might be better for the learner long-term, but maybe this biomechanist guy gets results in the short term. So I, I understand the pressures of, and the appeal of, you know, these shaved apes, these humans that mm -hmm. appear more confident than they are about something and how, that the general public really looks for that confidence to get better, right? Even though, you know, you might think in your mind, well, no, I've seen that approach. And I understand it, but really long-term, this more experiential model is probably going to be better for you. But again, people are going to be drawn to, and that's really a largely a problem of our industry too. We have a consumer, largely a consumer-driven industry. So the consumer really drives who gets the dollars a lot of times. And that, that can be frustrating. Yeah. I think if you are coach, like if I'm going to do a tennis lesson for a kid or something, I can't as a parent going to pay me if I just show up and I'm like, Hey, well, and I think about tennis, I think about Timothy Galway, inner game of tennis, like just work a very learner centered, like just pay attention to how the ball feels. What does it sound like? What's the rhythm versus, mm -hmm. versus trying to coach a hard line position or whatnot versus uh, Brad Gilbert. Someone directed me to this after I had been um, kind of putting out anecdotes from inner game of tennis which and he was saying well brad gilbert who wrote winning ugly i think brad gilbert was top 10 in the world in tennis at some point and wrote a very technical christian tito would call him a type three like a very analytical structural book on how to like be a very structured and and people would say this guy's technique is not very pretty but he's just tactical and so well what if we could have the best of both worlds what if that guy could have had a more because obviously his form was not good because it was probably very rigid and there was a very strategist, strategical will-centered person in there trying to, you know, and it clearly worked in that way. I'm just always interested what what is the balance in, in, in these things. And I do think too about a study I've been aware of for a while was Franz, I don't know who did it, but Franz Bosch highlighted it because I know his, you know, Franz Bosch, really big like motor learning and human skill acquisition guy. And it was two groups of uh, throwers and I think they were fairly high level, like fairly decently trained. And one group just went and they just threw the discus or whatever. And they all they got was feedback on how far it went. That's all they knew. How far did this go? And then the other group had a coach like coaching them up and teaching them what to do. And the the group that I believe this is like 99% sure this is what happened, but the coached up group 
did a little bit better in like the short term, like the first few few weeks. But then as the weeks went on, that group that just had the feedback of results and that's it eventually eclipsed because all these coaching cues were just biomechanical shortcuts. I, right. I, I had this idea there that these are all uh, hacks. I was listening to health and well-being podcasts where they were talking about like hack is the common word for everything. Like, and I always kind of hated that. I don't know why. Like, me too. And, me too. It's, it's, the, it's the Tim Ferriss syndrome, you know, the four hour, four hour athlete, right? Yeah, it's 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 like it's like something's wrong. So here's a quick band aid to slap over it, but you're not getting mm-hmm. to the core of what's going on. And so I think that that can be the same thing with coaching cues and mechanics. Is hey, here's something that's wrong. Let me give you a position to maybe fix it and maybe get you ahead for. And maybe get you ahead for a few weeks or months, but this isn't what your system is meant to do from its purest form. You know, it's like that you're not letting that supercomputer that's coordinating all these reactions and and balances and levers do what it I think ultimately is meant to do. And so that it does make me think, well, what would be the balance there between because I'd imagine that group that just got to do whatever and then only had the distance was probably coached formally on some they had to have been coached formally on some level prior to that. So it's an interesting conversation. I know we were going to talk about corrective stuff, and I'm trying to think about where that where that fits with that. So maybe I'll just ask you this: Is what's your take on corrective and rehab, and and where that structured versus learned centered approach fits with someone who's in pain or someone who has suboptimal quote, air quotes here posture or anything like that? Yeah, and I'm less and less of a fan of the term corrective. I know that's kind of a popular word. But I think language is important. And I don't even know if what we're really doing is correcting anything, you know, because I think about this a lot in regards to what we think we're doing with these corrective exercises. Really, they're just low force, very mindful, you know, um, inner centered exercises to generate some awareness around something. Or maybe like I talked earlier about graded exposure, maybe you're just doing a movement at a low enough level that's not painful until their body can build themselves up in order to do the things that they want to do with their body. So I'm not against the the exercises themselves. I think they're just different ways of engaging somebody's, you know, psychophysiology for lack of a better term and getting them to start moving again. And so I think any movement really can be quote unquote corrective, but really I think it's just the the way that they're implemented and what do they fold into? Shane Parrish has a great book called The Great Mental Models. He talks about the second order thinking in the book. And so that is, where does it go? So I'm always asking the questions, okay, you're doing a, let's say a side clam for your glute medius. Well, where does that go? Show me where that goes. Not that I'm against a side clam necessarily, but you have to show me where that eventually is going to lead to. So I always ask, and then what? And if I can't think in my mind, you know, where the the side clam is going to lead to, then I'm probably going to take that out of the order of uh, exercises. And I think that's a problem within the, the the continuum from rehab to performance is that we have this rehab oriented style of movement to help somebody to either modulate pain or to start the process of increasing capacity in an area all the way to performance where we're running, jumping, sprinting, kicking, lifting, whatever that activity is. And then there's this chasm in the middle. And you can't tell me that a side clam is going to make the leap into sprinting and putting multiples of your body weight on your structure. So I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> long story short is that I don't really love the term corrective exercise. I just look at its gradations of uh, movement. So yeah, a spectrum of, of two different opposite poles, one being pure, maybe 
sensation, I guess, on the me the joint level, like the small joint and proprioceptive level, all the way up to giant, like gross, explosive motor movements. And yeah, to think of it as yeah, just one big giant like spectrum, I think is cool because it's like, oh, you're good. You can go to the gym and just totally crush it and get full sympathetic, you know, fight or flight. And to think that there's no elements of perhaps the complete opposite polarity where there is like a level of sensation and understanding of your body. And maybe that's why the martial arts, I mean, I've, that's one thing I want to get into more, but like, from my understanding, the martial arts combines those worlds well, where there's mm -hmm. that, that inner understanding and the body awareness, and you're combining that with the power. It's almost as if, I mean, again, I've never done it, so I can't speak to it, but it, you're know, just reading some books. Like just reading a book on Bruce Lee really, <laughs> uh, but, uh, or I think it was like, I think the warrior within was, it was, but yeah, I, I, I like that. So based off you, you said, where, where are we going? So let's just say in a, if we're on these polarities and someone is more of, a, I'm in pain, I need something fixed and changed so I can get onto the higher end of the polarity. Where do you start? Like, what is your starting point with that issue in terms of giving them something to help them on their way? I mean, I think you should always start with what their intentions or their goals are and figure, figure out what those movements are and what the demands are. And then really, it sounds simple, but you, you want to observe their activity and see what they're doing before you start applying tools, right? You know, so obviously somebody that is just looking to, because again, I'm not trying to author their own life for them. I'm just trying to understand what they want to do. And sometimes it's not always clear. They're not always clear with, with what they want to do. You know, like for an athlete, like a sprinter, for example, their, their demands are obviously going to be much higher than somebody that just wants to go hiking or walking, right? So you consider the demands of their activities and then you say, okay, well, if you want to sprint, I know that you're going to have to, handle multiples of your body weight on one leg. And so there's some things, there's some prerequisites there, I think that are going to have to take place before you get there. But I always try and, and always go to the whole first before I start breaking out the constituent parts. And I know there's different philosophies on how people will break that out. Some people will start from the parts and build up to the whole. I personally just have never found that approach to be a good use of time. And if I can see that they can accomplish the whole part then uh, I don't see the necessity of having to do, you know, these specialized corrective ex exercises necessarily. And I've had many conversations about coaches. It's a really interesting conversation to have, but even things like we use things like glute bridges and I'm, I'm listing off some classic, uh, you know, corrective exercises that people will do. Whereas if I can see somebody do just a march in place and they can get adequate hip extension and achieve the, the positions that uh, are appropriate, then I think, I don't see the need to necessarily keep doing low level activities now. So I guess I also could say that I will do corrective exercises, quote unquote, corrective exercises if I have to, but only if I have to, <laughs> you know, if it means that it keeps somebody moving, then I'm, I'm in favor of doing that. Do you view things similarly as far as corrective exercises for yourself and your athletes or do you take, kind of take a different slant? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I'll just say as far as I go with correctives, my to me, correctives are more, I think a good illustration is for me is I like um, Austin Yoakum, who's been on this podcast, had an Instagram post that I think it, it fits with my ideology pretty well is he showed like an athlete doing a lateral lunge in the warmup, like here, we're doing a lateral lunge. And then he showed that another athlete playing spike ball, basically doing a dynamic lateral lunge to spike the ball in space. And how much greater, how much more is going on from a coordination perspective? 
the, in that lateral lunge to go spike the ball than just, oh, the coach said, just do this lateral lunge. You know what I'm saying? So I always want to, I'd rather cater towards the more, the more coordinative demand, the better. The more coordinative demand you can handle, the better. And so I like using like the Marvin Rinovich, like the physio ball stuff. Probot X is a good spectrum. They have stuff from like the low level, just simple stuff with these water bells or your body all the way up to dynamic and reversible. And so a lot of my movements rely on that on the lower level. Um, if an athlete is in pain, I like the idea of, well, let's give you sensation where you don't have it and then let's move. And ultimately, it's let's move. Let's let's move the body and let's explore spaces, like you said. Let's explore sensations and let's get let's get joints to move. And just by getting joints to move and just moving your body, I, I don't. I feel like it's as simple as that. Be it FRC shoulder cars or my go-to for the lower body has been Gary Ward's wedges. I mean, just total magic. Just by moving and opening up joints and ultimately, like the body kind of working as intended. I'm getting long winded, so I'm gonna stop you here. But, uh, but how can I get the body as close to moving as intended? Meaning, you know, pronation, supination, joint spirals, all joints are moving, and then exploring that space as tolerated, and then increasing the coordination demand over time as I can. I hope that yeah, I just kind of put that together in my head. So hopefully it makes sense. No, that's I I, I would agree with you, and I would say going back to my two points about novelty and graded exposure. I think sometimes a lot of these exercises are just ways of injecting novelty. So the body can start interpreting positions and movements differently. And then, and that may inform the whole, or maybe at least allows them to feel better or maybe feel like they're in less pain when they're doing an activity. And do we really know why it's, it's working? I, I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't think we really know or can know a lot of these things. But I think there's a reason why um, we have a lot of options for movement and there's so many systems that are born out because they probably all work at some level. Um, and having a collection of tools is probably going to be helpful, uh, even if we don't necessarily know the reasons why they're working. There's a very good chiropractor and physical therapist, Greg Lehman up in Canada, and he calls it building shit up and calming shit down. <laughs> so very simply, uh, I love it because it's such a distillation. It's so simple. It takes things that are incredibly complex and makes it very simple. And essentially he says, you're either calming things down. So that's decreasing pain or threat, or you're building stuff up. So you're increasing the capacities of the body to be able to handle forces, be able to handle load. And so I really, I think uh, at, at the base level, even though, even if it's a kind of a reductio ad absurdum, I'm making a you know, assumption, probably making things too simple at some level, we're probably just calming things down and building them up. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's like there is that if I've realized anything, Matt Cooper said this on this podcast, and I, I thought it was funny, but it's like it's very woke sounding to talk about the nervous system. <laughs> but yeah, to course. me, that's how you know, how complex is I mean, the nervous system is so complex. It's like I think it's going to be the last thing that we if we ever really figure it out, you know what I'm saying? And it's like so to just kind of give it up to that, that complex thing, it solved it. Whatever I did helped the nervous system to solve this problem. And I know um, for me, it, even just getting into like, just using like DC current and the ARP wave and stuff and just seeing how the electrical resistance of the body changes based off of either using the machine itself or certain exercises and then going back to the machine and seeing what happened, what changed. It's just, I, it's just like, we can almost always just try to find what got us close. 
I know you've um, you do massage as well. I mean, I imagine that has helped you understand also perhaps or give some insights as to how this whole thing fits, because I'm sure being able to put your hands and get in the tissue and understand things on that feeling level. I've, I've heard that, too, like, oh, the tissue change based off this input. And what's your how is being a massage and body worker helped you understand, I guess? Yeah, not corrective, but uh, just <laughs> that that end of the spectrum. Uh, yeah, I just think it's given me another layer and another set of tools, again, to encourage movement and allow an experience of movement that's maybe less threatening. So, uh, again, I, I do I really know what's going on in massage? No, I don't. But I do know that sometimes doing some manual work for people helps to decrease threat, if you want to call it that, or help them to just feel better from a sensory perspective, and then they can start moving more. And, yeah, I think you... There may be some things you can glean from just putting your hands on somebody just about how they hold tension or how they, you know, uh, how their joints move and things like that. But it's, I think a lot of massage therapists and manual therapists make a lot of assumptions about things that may or may or may not be true, you know, and I kind of went down that rabbit hole pretty hard when I was going through my massage program and taking, you know, courses and people are talking about how they're you know, communicating at the cellular level with this and they're changing fiber alignment with their hands. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I would say I'm pretty skeptical of that claim, but that being said, I also don't think it's, uh, I still think it's useful or can be useful in the right context at the right time. And also people just appreciate it. I think there's so much bashing going on with manual therapy, at least in the, you know, in the physical therapy world and the performance world, I think. And, there's nothing wrong with just helping people feel better. You know what I mean? Like, why does that, I know there's a big flame out with those massage guns. People are like, Oh, they don't do anything and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but if people feel better, like what's, they're not hurting anybody. I mean, unless you're causing like massive contusions or bruising and stuff. And like those, um, huge gigantic rollers. Yeah. The rumble rollers or the the fascia blasters. Anything that has a name, like a fascia blaster, I'm probably not going (laughs) to, subscribe you know <laughs> yeah i i'm on the same wavelength with the, the theraguns because i first saw them and i'm just thinking oh this is stupid this isn't actually doing anything to the fascia or whatever it's supposed to mm-hmm. do right and then but i'm like you know these wouldn't be popular if they didn't help people feel better like if they didn't help people feel better why would you use it and i remember uh someone had one and i was like ah my leg's sore i'll try it and i was like oh that does feel a lot better <laughs> like this is all this is great i'd use this and you like, look at and you also look at the people that use them quite a bit, you know, um, not to throw CrossFitters under the bus, but like I see a lot of the CrossFit community using these a, a intense massage devices. And I, I'm thinking to myself, why would they gravitate towards that? And I'm thinking, well, you know, CrossFitters spend a lot of time doing very intense exercise. And if you've ever as a, a body worker worked on CrossFitters, they're like their whole body is like incredibly hypertonic. They're just and, and, and that's not a judgment. It's just how they want to operate in their world, you know, but they, it probably feels really good to just massage things. And so you could say like, oh my God, your whole body's hypertonic. You need to relax. And it's like, well, that's, it's not my job to tell you how to live your life. So if massage makes you feel better, there's a reason that people gravitate to the things that they do. And that's, you know, independent of me and what I think you should do. And I think that's the problem of the ego within what we do is you have coaches and and trainers wanting to tell other people what to do. And I think we should just start with the position of understanding and then let the person make the most informed decision for themselves that they can, not me as an expert trying to tell you what to do. You know, if you want to do a backflip off of a clip with a chainsaw on your teeth, then go for it. I, it's not my 
job to tell you what to do or not to do. Hopefully, I would just be able to, uh, you know, provide a perspective for you uh, about the alternative or maybe some other choices that might be more favorable for you. So I like the CrossFit example because it makes me think about as the roller. I can't remember the name of the roller, but it's Donnie Thompson, I think, I think invented it, who squatted like suit squatted like 1300 pounds and the roller weighs like a yeah. hundred some pounds. And well, it's like, well, the body, body tempering, I think is what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I had heard a story about like, cause it's like, okay, as soon as this guy does this, oh, this is the most hardcore way to roll and did it. But like that could, that stuff could like kind of mess you up. I, I think I'd even heard some stories of like some small scale, like, you know, injuries or soreness that was the result of, I mean, anything you can do too much, right? Like uh, the tool that it feels good for a, a huge guy that squats 1300 is maybe not the tool that you should be using. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I'm sure there's people that's good. For, I mean, I, and again, it wouldn't sell if people didn't like, if it only worked for him and no one else, it wouldn't sell. So clearly it works for somebody. But I, I do think that's interesting that the tools we gravitate towards, it's like, it's almost like, you know, the as above, so below type mentality. It's just, you know, you work like this, but I don't know, on some, on some level, you almost wonder if maybe you should draw some extremes that are bigger. You know, if you work really hard, you should rest really hard or, I don't know. It's, it's areas to explore. Right. Well, and then, you know, where, where does it go? So what's the, what's the logical end there or illogical end, you know, so you have these body tempering devices that are 200 pounds. Well, what's the next step? You're going to put your arm under a steamroller. Like I don't <laughs> they'll really get, that'll really get the fascia. That'll actually will get yeah. the fascia. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So well, uh, yeah, I think it's, fascia. I think at some point you should ask where, where it's going. And also you, you've probably seen this with some athletes that like fall in love with the foam roller. Like you should ask some questions about like, well, if you're feeling the need to have to foam roll half an hour before every workout, you know, let's talk about maybe what's going on and maybe mm -hmm. we can save you some time on not having to feel like you need to do that. Cause some, sometimes it's just a belief. Yeah. It's just an idea that somebody, you know, implanted in their head or that they adopted from somebody else. Maybe they saw another athlete doing this and like, Oh, I just need to do it. I see that largely in the endurance community. They tend to um, do like these rehab exercises that they did 10 years ago, in addition to lots of foam rolling as kind of a, as a form of an insurance policy because they're trying to avoid injury. But as you and I know, foam rolling and doing, you know, low level exercises, there's is no guarantee that you're going to avoid injury. In fact, you're probably just wasting your time. I'd, I'd rather have you just go home and take a nap or go eat or something, you know? So that's the tragedy of the story is that people feel like they have to do it, even though they don't need to do it. Yeah. So that's where it, us, us as professionals can help others to put the pieces together for themselves and, and avoid and to really save them time, especially in a, in a world like ours where people are starved for time as it is. Yeah, for sure. I know I definitely got away from that habit of just feeling like I had to foam roll. And as soon as, and part of it too, is just, just learning how to move and train more intelligently prevents right. you from feeling messed up as it is just moving your body more naturally and just understanding yourself more in the warm-up too. learning to move better in the warm-up to create the same effect that you would have gotten from a roller not saying i'm not saying a roller can't i had a really good experience working in person with rocky snyder down in santa cruz not too long ago where he would selectively use it and test use mm -hmm. a neurological test to then see if this is in fact actually helping you for this muscle group and it's but it was not at all a, hey, just roll your muscles out type thing because this is a, you know, that which most people do. I, I would say too, about 80% of the, uh, if I had to put a number on it, about 80% of the 
issues that people have are really related to, as you said, just errors in training, not improper load management, doing things that are above their pay grade, not training at the right intensity and the right frequency. Those are all issues that need to be addressed on an educational level. And especially working on bodies, you know, bodies tell a story sometimes. And one of those stories could just be like, I was mentioning about the hypertonic CrossFitters, you know, like they could be, it could just be that they're tight all the time because they're really pushing themselves very hard. And maybe they're not providing enough of a a deload or whatever it needs to be in order to allow them to adapt, maybe. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, you were talking about doing uh, work, like observing the person first before you start assigning these things that help them to move better, get out of pain. And you've been through a lot of systems, Nagoski, PRI, Feldenkrais. I think I feel like we've met it. Maybe it wasn't a PRI. It was, it was Pat Davidson's seminar where you and I first met, not PRI. I know Pat has a experience with PRI as well. But so the synthesis of these, these methods and means, do you have any, any themes that really tend to resonate when you're working with somebody from the ground up, if you are trying to find that linchpin? I mean, I doubt you're, you're cranking out the clamshells and monster van walks. <laughs> where has this kind of landed you a little bit? Yeah, I think it's hopefully getting more and more simpler. We were talking about approaching this fitness singularity at some point. Like that would be a wonderful goal for us to just the one exercise that does it all. That's what I'm always asking. Yeah, that's the last question of this whole every time. (laughs) I'm I'm waiting for it. Nobody's found it yet. Um, Honestly, it just gets a lot. It gets a lot simpler for me. I've been really interested lately in understanding kind of different physiological stereotypes, meaning or somatotypes. So like different bodies. I think. We have a lot to learn. I, I certainly have a lot to learn um, about different individual response to things, right? And so you have somebody like, you know, an ectomorphic female that might respond really well to strength training. That might be the linchpin that changes her world, you know. Whereas if I have somebody that is, um, you know, like a power lifter type that's, you know, uh, really muscular, but maybe they need a little bit more aerobic work in their life to just feel better and recover better. So. I'm always interested in kind of like filling these buckets for people uh, and just seeing based on what they want to do and what they want to accomplish and where, where some buckets might need to be filled. And often what I find is people, we, we like to do what we're good at, of course, right? Like we're naturally inclined to do what we enjoy doing, which is wonderful, but sometimes taken to an extreme, we're avoiding the things that allow our body to function the way it should. And so that's going to, that recipe is going to look a little different for different people. But, you know, I would say my system, if I had a system, is not that complicated. It's really centered around understanding good movement, whatever that is for the person, fundamental movement, skill and coordination, just the ability to learn how to squat and hinge and, you know, do a push-up. These are all basic foundational physical literacy things. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of, at least in the general population, of just very simple strength training. I think strength training does a ton of things for people. And it doesn't have to be complicated. And as far as what it looks like, I'm not beholden to any one style of loading. I just want to get, I want to load people's bodies. And that has several reasons, structural, hormonal, you know, even from a movement standpoint, to me, strength training can be loaded mobility. You can get increases in range of motion just by getting stronger in greater ranges. And so I think it doesn't have to be too complicated. And then of course, from a health standpoint, I want to make sure people are doing things that encourage cardiovascular health and aerobic fitness, which is correlated with cardiovascular disease. So those are all important things as well. That's kind of my overarching theme. I know that was kind of broad in general, but that's kind of the the paradigm that I operate under. You know, do you move well? Are you strong? And do you have, you know, a healthy heart and lungs? 
And then if you want to get specific as far as sport performance, then now we're talking about titrating down into more of a specific format. And sometimes that'll lead us further away from health. But those are decisions that ultimately have to be made by the athlete, not by not by me. I'm just there to be a sounding board or I like to say I'm, I'm a stem cell for your dreams. So you just tell me what you want to do and we'll just plug and play. <laughs> I so. like that. Where is respiration and breathing landed in all this for you? Uh, it's fundamental. So I would put that in kind of the fundamental movement category. There are many different ways to breathe. I certainly learned from the DNS um, courses and also through PRI about respiration as it relates to movement, you know, finding a punctum fixum as DNS calls it, or a zone of apposition for PRI has been big for me. So I start that with all my people learning how to get a, a rib cage stacked over a pelvis and to, and to really start from that position as they're moving. So that's certainly important from a movement standpoint. I honestly don't, even though I've taken like Wim Hof breathing, I've taken Buteco courses, I think they all have uh, some great stuff in there. I honestly don't spend a lot of time with it only because of the context that I'm in. I'm, I'm kind of a movement professional. So I tend to guide breath more around stuff as it relates to improving people's movement. So that would be more stuff in like the PRI world, the DNS world, less about the Buteco or the oxygen advantage kind of thing. But I, I might encourage a client to explore that further if it's something that's going to help them with their life, whether it's helping them to ramp their system down, help with anxiety or whatever it is. Or maybe I'll refer them to somebody to get that work done for themselves. But yeah, breathing is huge. It's so, so important. And it tells you a lot about people and how they move when they're you know, holding their breath or fixing in any kind of way while they're moving. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool observations that can be made when someone's holding their breath. I've learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their coordination just falls apart, right? I mean, you know, unless you're a power lifter trying to squat a thousand pounds or whatever, you know, breathing is such an important part of, of movement. So it should be emphasized. Well, right on, man. Well, hey, I think we're we're just about an hour. And I think we just about got through our list, man. So I'll nice. uh, yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that. And it was really good talking to you, Charlie, man. I always I I just always love your the way your mind works and the way you see things. And it was really cool, especially these the corrective exercise and how that that filters up through the explosive end. I'll definitely be thinking about that, man. So appreciate your thoughts, your insight. And um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Hopefully it was helpful for your listeners. (laughs) All right, that wraps up another show. Thanks for being here with us. If you'd like the show and enjoy what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. It helps get the word out of this show and helps those people who might be interested in it to find it. Before we leave, I wanted to give a last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, data and non-data training tools. So things like a bar, you want bar speed tracking, you want force plates, you want timing systems, they got it. You want training equipment like K-Box or blood flow restriction, they have that too. Uh, they've been a longtime sponsor of our show and we are really appreciative of them supporting us. All right, that does it for this week. We'll see you guys next one.